and God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Um, we pray that we would see who you are and who we aren't, um, but we wouldn't leave it at that. We would strive to be more like you, God, so I pray that you would challenge us through this text, that we would be inspired uh, by your goodness, by your passion, uh, the way you did things while you were here on earth. Um, it's, it's, it is inspiring, Lord, so I pray that we would uh, learn both what to do and and, and what not to do as we uh, examine our own spiritual walk. So we ask your spirit to teach us, fill us, guide us, direct us as we uh, dive into the text. In your name, amen. All right, uh, so just to catch you up to speed if you haven't been here, uh, Matthew chapter 26, uh, it starts off, we see Jesus reminds the disciples once again that he's going to be crucified, and then Mary uh, performs this amazingly powerful act of worship, and she anoints the Lord's head with this very costly, fragrant oil. As I mentioned before, uh, many scholars suggest that this was likely a year's worth of salary, so this was something that cost her dearly. And we see, in contrast, Judas, where Mary was willing to give Jesus her all. Judas wasn't. In fact, he was trying to make something off of Jesus. So he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, we're going to see him betray Jesus in this text. But before we get there, after that, after the anointing at Bethany from Mary and Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, we see Jesus. Jesus institutes communion and he institutes communion despite the fact that he knew the disciples were going to abandon him, despite the fact that he knew Judas was going to betray him. And what that tells us is that Jesus desires communion. He desires relationship with us regardless of the fact that he knows we're going to stumble. He knows we're going to fail him. We, he knows we're going to fall the Lord's heart is for relationship with us. Though we, we may fall, he's able to lift us back up and we're going to see the disciples fall in this text specifically. Now, what's going to happen before that is Jesus is going to be praying in the garden. He's going to challenge the disciples to pray and we see the passion of the Christ, the passion of him in his relationship with God the Father as he passionately pursues the Lord in the midst of the knowledge Knowledge of, of the crucifixion coming within hours the next day at 3 p.m. to be exact. In contrast to that, we see the disciples spiritually complacent. They don't listen to Jesus. They're not praying when they, they're supposed to be praying. And we're going to see Jesus prepared for his crisis where the, as the disciples weren't because of their spiritual complacency. The title of this teaching is His Passion and Our Complacency. His passion and our complacency. As we continue to study these last hours of the Lord's life, we're going to see a lot of that. What the authors of the Gospels are trying to do, what they're trying to tell us is this is who Jesus is and this is who we are. And it's sad when we look at some of these people, it's not just like, oh, I'm like Jesus in the story. No, we're like the negative example in the story. We're supposed to be like Jesus, but the reality of it is we have to learn who we aren't so that we can become who he's called us to be. So we're going to look at that contrast between Jesus and the disciples in this text. Let's pick it up. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, 
Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Now, Gethsemane was east of the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem, uh, across uh, the ravine of the Brook Kidron. Okay, so they're in Jerusalem in that same area. Gethsemane was a place that Jesus took his disciples to on a somewhat regular basis when they were in Jerusalem. And Gethsemane, what the word means literally is olive press. This is a place where they would press olives and we're getting a little... um, uh, 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 an interesting Greek word to portray a biblical principle. See, Jesus is like the olive getting pressed, if you will. What happens when you press olives? What comes out? Oil. Olive oil, right? And olive oil is a picture of what in the Bible? The Holy Spirit, okay? This is the beginning of the Lord's pressing. We're going to see Him praying with anguish in the garden. He's being pressed on all sides. But what we see come out of Jesus is the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to see love. We're going to see joy. We're going to be peace, see peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control. As the disciples get crushed, that's not what we're going to see come out of them. See, Jesus, we're to follow his example in that when the pressure's on, when we're being pressed, when we're being crushed, the real us comes out. And hopefully the Holy Spirit comes out and the fruit of the Spirit comes out. Sadly, but truly, that's not always the case. Jesus will begin to get crushed. The disciples will begin to get crushed. And we're going to see two entirely different characters portrayed with this pressing. So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's no coincidence. He's being pressed like an olive is pressed. And what's going to come out of him is pure oil or the Holy Spirit. So um, in Matthew's gospel, uh, there's, a, there's a, a gap that's not communicated between communion and uh, the situation that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. But John talks about this, uh, this time period quite a bit. In fact, all the way from the end of John chapter 13 to the end of John chapter 17, Jesus is teaching the disciples. He's talking to them about a lot. He's talking about to them about the Holy Spirit, who's he, who he's going to send to them. He talks to them about relationship. He talks to them about unity among a, a lot of other different things. So there's a lot happening between our last teaching and this teaching that we're not going to talk about. If you want to read it, read John chapter 13 all the way up to 18. And there's a lot that the, the Lord taught during that time, but we're in Matthew, not John, so we're not going to discuss all those different things. But Jesus, while he's in the garden, he says to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Jesus, knowing that the end is near, meaning knowing that his death is near, he knew what was important. He knew he needed to get alone with his father. He knew he needed to depend on his father's strength so that he would be able to endure the cross. In light of his knowledge of the end, he's being prepared. He's getting prepared in the moment. So it goes on to say, Matthew chapter 26, verse 37 And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. 
So in the Greek, this exceedingly sorrowful statement is expressing like the greatest sorrow you can ever imagine, like unimaginable pain. Uh, when we look at the exceeding, exceeding sorrowful, like the, the, the English really doesn't give us uh, an accurate portrayal of what the Greek is trying to let us know. This is literally like pain that you can't even imagine. Um, more appropriately, uh, a better translation would be like shock. Like Jesus is literally in shock or that he's experiencing violent emotion. Like he's experiencing so much pain emotionally that it's actually causing him physical pain. Okay, this is point number one. His passion is expressed through pain. His passion is expressed through pain. Or more specifically, his passion is expressed through enduring pain. It wasn't just the pain of the cross. It was all these things leading up to the cross. He's exceedingly sorrowful, unimaginable pain. But why is Jesus sorrowful? The number one reason why Jesus is sorrowful isn't because of the pain of the cross. It's not the physical pain that he's so concerned about that he doesn't want to face. It's the spiritual pain. It's the emotional pain. Because on the cross, for the first time in eternity, God the Father and God the Son would be separated for a moment of time as Jesus bears the wrath of the sins of the world. This is why he's so sorrowful. He's so sorrowful because he's going to be separated from his Father and just the thought itself, he can't bear it. He he can't bear the thought of being separated in relationship from his Father for a moment of time. Now, though we can't relate to this exactly, uh, I think I can bring it to terms that maybe we could relate to. I will tell you, any day, any time of the week, I'd rather experience a broken bone than a broken heart. See, Jesus, this is what he's walking through. His heart is being crushed right now. Yes, he's going to do this for the sake of the world, but his heart is being crushed because he's going to be separated from his father. Now, I'm sure many of you can relate, especially if you've experienced both a broken heart and a broken bone. I've broken many bones, hands and legs and ankles and so many different things. And it hurts. It hurts bad. But it's nothing compared to a broken heart. In fact, it takes less time to heal a broken bone than it does to heal a broken heart. That emotional pain, that spiritual pain is greater than physical pain. This is really why Jesus is exceedingly sorrowful. In fact, Luke adds to this and tells us to show us and reveal to us how sorrowful he actually is. As the Lord prays, it says in Luke chapter 22, same, same context, same section of the story. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, says, In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He was praying so passionately and, and, and he was in such agony, literally blood was coming out of his forehead. The spiritual emotional pain, again, was affecting him physically. It was physically, he just couldn't handle it. He couldn't bear it. Now, obviously, he did handle it and he did bear it. But this is a painful experience for Christ. And it's all because, once again, 
he knows he's going to be separated from his father. This is how much he loves his father. This is how unified they actually are. The thought of being separated is causing him so much pain that blood is coming out of his forehead. Do you experience pain like this at the thought of being separated from God? And I'm not talking about being separated from eternity. I'm talking about bringing sin into our lives that, that separates us from God, that hinders our relationship with God. Because this is the way. Jesus is the way. And we should have this same mentality. It says we're supposed to have the mind of Christ. In fact, Paul tells us that we've been given the mind of Christ to think how he thinks. And this is this should be our mentality when we consider sin. Just the thought. Not just the sin. The thought of the consequences of the sin. Of, of hindering our relationship with God. Should bring us to a place of anguish. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians uh, 7, uh, verses 10 to 11, that godly sorrow. Now, it's in context to repentance, but what he's getting at is we should be so sorrowful, be in so much anguish, so much pain at the thought of doing anything that brings a barrier between us and our relationship with God. This is how passionate Jesus was about his relationship with his father. So much pain, he says, look, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He's so emotionally hurt. He feels like he's going to die. Now he knows he's going to die tomorrow, but he feels like he's going to die in this moment because he's in so much anguish. Again, just at the thought of being separated from his father. Once again, we can't relate to this specifically, but we can relate to it generally we won't ever know maybe when we die and go to heaven he talks to us about it but we'll never be able to fully relate and experience the pain that christ is walking through right now we always look at the cross and it's a horrendous thing we'll get into it in a couple weeks but this was the worst thing for jesus it wasn't the pain of the cross it was the separation from his father he couldn't bear it he thought he was going to die Have you ever gone through so much emotional pain, so much spiritual pain that you didn't think you were going to make it through? That that you literally thought you weren't going to be able to endure this emotion. I'll never come back from this. I'm scarred forever because of this. In fact, this thing is so painful, I'd rather be dead. That's the mentality that the Lord has. This is how much pain this is causing him. Again, just the thoughts. This isn't even the cross yet. So what does he do? It says in verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Point number two, his passion is expressed through prayer. His passion is expressed through prayer. The Lord is passionate about prayer up until the very end, literally up into his last breath. He's praying to God. He didn't give up on prayer because time, times got hard. He didn't give up on prayer because the Lord forsook him in a sense. And we'll talk about that later to give understanding to it. But he didn't give up on prayer because he was going through a trial that was simply unbearable. No, he was passionate about prayer up into the very end. And sadly, for many, we can go through something, something difficult. Maybe it contradicts our prayer life and we'll give up on prayer. It doesn't work anymore. That wasn't the Lord. He was passionate up till the very end. 
And look what he says. We'll break this down, this prayer. He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If it is possible, it wasn't possible. There was no other possible way to bring redemption to the world. If there was another way, God would have given Jesus another way out. This was the only possible way to redeem the world by the blood of the Lamb. If the cross was the only possible way to bring redemption to the world, then the cross is the only way to bring redemption to our personal lives. There is no other way. If there was another possible way, Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross. God the Father would have said, okay, what if we have this other plan? This is the backup plan. Jesus, if you can't handle this or if this is too much for you, let's do this other thing. No, this was the plan from the beginning because this is the only way that the Lord could bring salvation to the world. He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? Well, it was the cup of judgment or the cup of wrath or the cup of suffering. And we see this cup referenced throughout the Old Testament. I'll point you to one in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. It says, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. The cup of his fury, the cup of his wrath. This was the cup that the Lord was forced to drink. And this is why he's upset. Again, it's not the physical pain. He literally has to bear the wrath of all sins, past, present, and future in a moment. Like you think about the consequences that we face when we fall into sin. And maybe we... Uh, burn bridges and and, 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 and and cause turmoil in relationships. And, and for me, maybe blowing my life away. But for the Lord, He's bearing the wrath of all of it in a moment. Not just my sins, not just your sins. The sins of the entire world, the Lord has to bear that. Jesus asked the Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to do it in a sense. He knew he had to do it and he knew he was going to do it. But in his humanity, he didn't want to do it. There were things that the Lord didn't want to do in this life. If you think about that, if you think about how passionate he was about being obedient to his father, radical obedience, despite the cost, he was determined to obey every single second, every single moment, whatever the father told him to do, he would do even when he didn't want to. Are we that passionate about obedience? Do we choose to obey even when it's going to cost us something? Because obedience in this case, it cost Jesus everything. It literally cost him everything. But he also knew this truth. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He knew that this act of obedience was going to be costly, but the reward far outweighed the cost. That's what his mentality was. I know this obedience will be rewarded despite the fact that in my humanity, I don't want to do it. He chose obedience even when he didn't want to. He says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Point number three, his passion is expressed through surrender. His passion is expressed through surrender. 
He wasn't trying to force his will on God the Father. He wasn't trying to say, hey, I got a good idea. Why don't we do it this way? Like, isn't this a good alternative plan? We can go this route. I figure it out another solution. He's the most intelligent being that ever walked the earth. He could have came up with something different. But again, there was no other possible way. So he gets to this point, not as I will, but as you will. This also speaks of another garden. Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam. We see that throughout Romans specifically. In the first garden, right? In the garden of Eden, Adam, the first Adam, he said, not your will, but mine be done. He said, not your will, God, but mine be done. And what did that do? It brought death to the entire world. Jesus, the second Adam, in the next garden, the garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And it brought redemption, salvation to the entire world. Jesus, in this moment, he's redeeming what happened in the garden. That's what he's doing. Sadly, we often relate with the first Adam more than we do with the second Adam. We want God to, to make our agenda happen. We want God to, uh, to make our will come to fruition. Lord, not your will, but mine be done. I think it's better. Uh, I think there's more thought behind it. I think it makes more sense than your will. And we'll try to force our will on God. But when we try to force our will on God, just as Adam will bring death into our lives, it might not be physical death, but it'll be death to something. Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life, our mentality, must be as his was not my will but yours be done even when it's hard and a lot of times it is even when it costs us even when there's suffering involved even when we don't want to do it his will is always greater than ours and i know we say that but do we believe it because if we believe it this won't just be something that we read nor will it be just something that we pray but it'll be something that we live when it comes to a, a a situation where this is what i want but this is what the lord wants what are we going to choose jesus he chose what his father wanted and it brought great reward matthew chapter 26 verse 40 then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. They're doing exactly the opposite of what he told them to do. Watch and pray. You cannot watch when your eyes are closed, right? Nor can you pray. I wonder, it doesn't say it in there, but I wonder if the disciples, oh, we were praying with our eyes closed. Like, no, no, we were praying. It doesn't say that. <laughs> Pretending to be spiritual, they weren't. Jesus knew. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew what they were doing. He knew they were sleeping. They were doing the exactly, exactly the opposite of what he asked them to do. And he was asking them to watch and pray to prepare them for the crisis that was going to come. And he says, could you not pray with me one hour? Jesus apparently had been praying for at least an hour. And he looks at the disciples with an expectation. I have an expectation that you're spiritual. I have an expectation that you can pray for at least an hour straight. When's the last time you prayed for an hour straight? When's the last time that you sat there with the Lord and just prayed for an hour about everything on your heart? If It's been a long time since you've prayed for an hour straight. I strongly encourage you to come to corporate prayer. We pray for about an hour straight. And I'm being serious though. The Lord has an expectation. You can't pray for an hour. 
What does that mean? That he expects us to be even praying longer than that. And I'm not saying every day you have to pray for an hour a day. But if it's never happened, the Lord has an expectation that it should be happening. And the disciples, they're not fulfilling that expectation. And again, he says, this is the reason why I want you to pray. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Jesus was trying to set the disciples up for success, but the disciples, they were setting themselves up for failure. Point number four, complacency leads to temptation. Complacency leads to temptation. Yep, (laughs) it sure does. (laughs) Now, when Jesus said this, when, when Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, they probably thought he's telling us to watch and pray so we don't fall back into the temptation of falling asleep again. They're not looking forward. They don't know what's happening around the corner. Though he warned them that they're going to stumble because of them, they didn't realize the significance of the temptation. I'm just going to, what's a little sleep going to do? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, right? They didn't realize how significant this rebuke would be. They didn't realize how the spiritual complacency in the garden, not watching, not praying, it was going to cost them dearly. And we too often don't realize how acts of spiritual complacency affect us down the road or how it's like a, uh, it's a vicious cycle, a tumbling effect, if you will. For example, let's say, wake up one morning, I don't want to pray, I, I, I don't want to read, I'm too tired, I'm not doing that today. And then what happens? You get to work, you're a little more irritable, maybe you have a conflict with a coworker that you never really liked anyways, that argument just resides in your heart like you're upset. You think about all the things that you should have said that you didn't say, and you're like, oh man, so you get home and then what? Now it's the wife and kids, I'm already irritable, they say one thing, it's going to set me off. And now you get in a conflict with them. Now the wife and kids are suffering because of your spiritual complacency. And then what? Later at the end of the night, you realize, dang, I messed up. I'm a jerk. And now I'm convicted of sin. But now I can't sleep. So tomorrow I'm going to wake up tired again and I'm not going to read. And I'm not going to get in the Word. And now I'm going to do the same thing over again. The point is, spiritual complacency has a trickling effect. We don't realize, come on, it's just a little time of prayer. How can that really affect things? Jesus is saying it affects everything. This moment in time, you need to engage spiritually because if you don't, when the crisis comes, you're not going to be ready. You're going to get caught on your heels. And for the disciples, they're going to run away. And he tells them, gets to the root of the problem in verse 41, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now the flesh, it's both weak and strong, okay? The flesh is weak in ability, but strong in desire. Though the flesh is very strong in desire, anyone who's ever sinned knows that. The flesh, it is that carnal nature in us, that sinful nature, that desire to do things that we know we ought not to do, but it's weak in ability, meaning we can't accomplish anything worthwhile if we're leaning on our flesh. Jesus is pointing to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is there's an internal go- battle going on between the spirit and the flesh. Paul elaborates on this in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, 
It's so interesting as you look at so many of the things that the Lord said, you just have to pose the question like, is this whole chapter, was Paul thinking about what Jesus said in this one sentence? Maybe, maybe not, but he elaborates on it uh, in detail. I want to point to one verse though. In Galatians 5.17, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. In other words, there's a battle going on within every person. There's the battle of the spirit and the flesh. Jesus says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak, Because they've been feeding the flesh for so long. And we have the spirit. We have the flesh. This battle will go on forever. But what we feed is going to grow. And the thing that gets stronger is going to be the one that overcomes more often. So if we're constantly giving in to spiritual complacency, the flesh is winning. The the flesh is taking control of our lives. And the flesh's goal is to destroy us from the inside out. But if we're feeding the spirit... Choosing to watch, choosing to pray, choosing to read, choosing to fast, choosing to serve, choosing to do all the things that the Lord calls us to do. That's feeding the Spirit. Feeding the Spirit is really really just making those choices to do the things that we know the Spirit is leading. And as we feed the Spirit, the Spirit grows, gets stronger. If we obey the Spirit now, we're more likely to obey the Spirit later. But if we obey the flesh now, we're more likely to obey the flesh later. Which one is dominating you? Which one dominates your life? It is, the fl- is it the flesh or is it the Spirit? Are you a carnal man with spiritual moments or a spiritual man with carnal moments? That applies to both men and women. Now, God knows we're going to mess up. The goal is to be a spiritual person that oh, I have, might make a little slip up here and there. But a carnal man that just has spiritual moments, that's the disciples in this text. They had some spiritual moments, but they're carnal and their flesh is leading them. They're dominated by their flesh. Matthew chapter 26, verse 42 Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. couple things here. The disciples are asleep again. Jesus told them a spiritual battle is going on inside them. The, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They don't know that a crisis is right around the corner, even though he warned them. But the truth of the battle is the truth of the matter is is that spiritual battles are often fought and won before the crisis ever happens if they were prepared spiritually and did what the lord was asking them to do they would have been ready for the crisis they didn't so they wouldn't and they're going to lose that battle jesus he continues to pray oh my father this cup cannot pass away from me unless i drink it your will be done jesus was not only passionate about prayer, but he persisted in prayer. He asked God more than once. He asked God the Father more than once. If if Jesus is the way, and his way was to persist in prayer, and he continued to pray this thing, we're going to see three times with different verbiage used, the Lord prayed to the Father more than once about the same thing. Do you give up praying about something after one time? 
Or do you keep praying? Do you keep asking? Do you keep seeking? Do you keep knocking? This isn't just something that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 11. This is something that he lived. This is something that he showed up again until the very end. So he comes, finds the disciples asleep again. Their eyes were heavy. They didn't take the initial rebuke seriously. Watch and pray lest you enter temptation. Oh, the temptation won't be that bad. The crisis, the consequences for not being spiritual right now, they're not going to be that bad, will they? What's, what's a little harm? What's the harm in, in just nodding off a little bit? It says their eyes were heavy. You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you know what I'm talking about right now. Says, Those eyes were heavy, right? It's like doing the nodding thing. That's where they were at. Now, we know the disciples just had the Last Supper. They had a big meal. A Seder dinner is a big meal. Eat till you're full. Lots of food. And now it's, it's somewhere in the middle of the night. These are late hours. This isn't like early. This is a late time period. So we can understand why the disciples would be asleep. It was the normal time that they would likely go to sleep. But sometimes the normal schedule that we have, the normal times that we sleep or we do this or do that, are the times that we need to be engaged spiritually. The times that we need to be engaged the most spiritually. This is one of the most important times for the disciples to be spiritual. And they're not heavy eyes. They're falling asleep once again, even after the first rebuke. It goes on to say, Matthew chapter 26, verse 44. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. So the second time he sees them, Falling asleep, he doesn't say anything this time. It's as if he's given them over to their temptation. He rebuked them once. They didn't listen. He says, okay, you're going to suffer the consequences. Don't say to me that I didn't tell you so because I tried to warn you and you didn't listen. And sometimes the Lord, he does this with us. He'll rebuke us. He'll challenge us. He'll try to get our attention. But then we do something called grieving the spirit until the point that we quench it. And then at that point, sometimes the Lord doesn't talk to us about it anymore. He says, okay, you won't learn through my words, so you're going to learn through suffering the consequences for your actions. So he gave them over. He will warn them again. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I also want to point out something else here. See, the disciples obviously are portraying spiritual complacency, but their spiritual complacency isn't wearing off on Jesus. Jesus isn't saying, well, my boys are, are being spiritually complacent, so I'm going to stop praying. No, he was strong in practicing his spiritual disciplines despite the fact that the disciples were spiritually complacent. Jesus is stronger than us, though. See, Jesus was able to continue to be strong in practicing spirituality, but we're not as strong as him. Do you have carnal friends that influence your spiritual life? Do you have carnal friends that influence you negatively spiritually? They could even be believers. They could be believers, but they're like, dude, they're not praying. They're not reading the word. They're not serving. They're not getting involved. They don't come to church anymore. They say, I have a relationship with God and that might be questionable, but their carnal behaviors, whether they're a believer or not, they will, the Bible promises, they will rub off on you. In 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three, it says, in other words, bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three. it's a promise. If you hang around bad company enough, 
that company will corrupt your moral standard. We become like the people we surround ourselves with. If you don't believe me, ask Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked the earth. What happened? His heart, his wives turned his heart away from God. Literally, he walked away from God for a time period. Now in Ecclesiastes, it appears that he came back, but he was in that fallen state. The point is, it could be even the closest people to us. That carnal behavior, it it rubs off on us. We aren't Jesus. Yes, we're supposed to be like him. He was stronger than us. He was able to endure their spiritual complacency. He didn't allow it to rub off on him. He continued to be steadfast in prayer. Matthew 26, verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So he warns them the first time. The second time, he gives them over. Now the third time, he's basically saying, you're too late. You're too late. You're going to already suffer the consequences. Again, don't tell me that I didn't tell you so, but now my betrayer is at hand, and this is the moment that you guys were supposed to be prepared for, and I tried to warn you, and you blew it because you didn't listen to me. He knows Judas is on his way. He knows. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Jesus, knowing every moment, every minute when things were going to play out, knowing that Judas was going to come, knowing that the cross was around the corner, he engaged spiritually. He purposed to engage his mind. He purposed to be in prayer. He purposed to think about spiritual things. So now he's going to be ready for the crisis and the disciples won't. So it goes on, Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. (laughs) So we see, he says, Behold Judas. He already knew Judas was around the corner, that he was coming. But this is interesting. The Lord, knowing all things, couldn't he have gone somewhere else? Couldn't he have been like, well, Judas is going to betray us in the garden because he knows we're always there. Uh, Maybe we should take a different route and go a different way and hang out in a different area. Jesus, knowing Judas was going to betray him and where he was going to betray him, he still chose to go to the same place. Why? Because this was all part of the plan. He had to fulfill this. The betrayal part had to happen before the cross would happen. Now look at what Judas says in verse 49. Greetings, Rabbi. It's like this false form of respect. Greetings, Rabbi. But this is, this is, <laughs> this is sickening. It makes the betrayal even worse because he knows exactly what he's going to do. But in the midst of this, look at how Jesus responds. Friend. He calls him friend. In the moment that he's betraying him, he calls him his friend. Now I believe personally, that this was like that last invitation to repent. Hey, listen, I know what you're going to do after this. You're not going to be able to live with yourself because of what you did. You're ultimately going to kill yourself. You're going to hang yourself. I'm still calling you friend, Judas. I'm still calling you friend despite the betrayal, despite the fact that you're the worst friend ever. I'm still calling you friend. 
we see the love of Christ manifested in this moment, despite the betrayal, he still says, friend. So, verse 50 says, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now, a significant event happens just before they lay hands on him. And John tells us in John chapter 18, he talks about this event. In John chapter 18, verse 6, Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus is saying, I am, as God, Yahweh, introduced himself to Moses, who sent who sent me? Say, I am sent you. I am who I am. He's claiming this title. He's claiming the title of Yahweh. So these words, they literally made these men fall to the ground. The power of his words. Now, I don't know if some like just boo, like powerful thing, and they fell on the ground, or they were just so shocked that he claimed to be Yahweh. I'm not sure exactly what happened. The text doesn't tell us, but something powerful happened when he made this statement claiming that he is the I Am. After that, then they laid hands on him. Back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 51. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Matthew doesn't tell us who this is. Matthew doesn't want to rat out his boy. But John has no problem ratting out his boy. John tells us that this was Peter, right? So Peter, he was ready to fight, but he wasn't ready to pray. And if he would have been ready to pray, then he probably would have seen that, that, that fighting was unnecessary. He wasn't aligned with God's heart, with God's intentions, because he was sleeping when he was supposed to be spiritual. And so what he does is he tries to perform this radical action to compensate for his spiritual complacency. That's point number five. Radical actions can't substitute for spiritual complacency. Radical actions can't substitute for spiritual complacency. Now, a lot of this probably stems from the conversation that he had with Jesus, where Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, no, I'll die for you. I'll go to prison for you, yada, yada, yada. So he's trying to prove Jesus wrong. So he tries to strike this high priest. Now, he likely wasn't going for the ear, okay? He's probably trying to cut this guy's head off. His name was Malchus, by the way. So he's likely trying to cut his head off, but he ain't a swordsman. He's a fisherman. So he misses. He cuts off the guy's ear. Making up for, attempting to make up for his lack of obedience, his spiritual complacency. Again, if he were obedient to what the Lord asked him to do, watch and pray, he might not find himself in this situation. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 15.22, in 1 Samuel 15.22, that obedience is greater than sacrifice. God desires obedience greater than sacrifice. And we can have this mentality that we try to make up for disobedience by sacrificing time, effort, money, whatever the case. I'm going to serve. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be passionate about God in these areas. But the areas that he asked me to be obedient in, I'm not. And because I'm not being obedient in those things, I feel like I have to make it up in other things. This is what Peter's doing. And this is sometimes what we do. I'm not going to pray when you ask me to pray, but I'll go on a mission trip. I'm not going to read when you ask me to read, but I'll serve. And we can try to attempt to 
substitute these radical actions, these sacrifices, these big things for disobedience and spiritual complacency. But it doesn't work like that. The Lord would rather us do the little things that He's asking us to do than do the big things that He didn't even ask us to do. Now, I think going on mission trips, you know, I I think it's a great thing. Serving, obviously a big thing. And these things that the Lord asks us to do, these sacrifices, can be avenues of obedience. I'm talking about trying to make up for the disobedience. It doesn't work like that. He desires obedience more than sacrifice. Now, we know in Luke 22 that Jesus put this guy's ear back on his head. He literally healed his ear. Despite Peter's arrogance and ignorance and performing this radical action, Jesus shows us that love covers a multitude of sins. And that's 1 Peter 4.8. And I believe Peter had, had many lessons to learn that truth. Love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus was literally covering Peter's sins by putting that ear back on that guy. Goes on. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? So a legion in that culture, in that time period, was estimated about 6,000 foot soldiers and 700 horsemen. Okay? 6,000 foot soldiers, 700 horsemen. And he's talking about angels. He says, I have tens of thousands of angels that are just waiting. And if I call them, they will attack. In other words, he's telling Peter, I don't need your protection. I don't need you to protect me. Like, who do you think that I am? It was almost an insult that Peter did this. Yes, I'm sure he's thinking, I want to protect my Lord. Jesus doesn't need our protection. He doesn't need our protection. Now, I'm not saying don't stand up for what you believe in, but sometimes I think, and it happens a lot with evangelism, if somebody says like a derogatory thing about Jesus or whatever, we feel like we got to fight for Jesus. It's like, he's, he'll fight his own fight. He'll fight for himself. Remember what he says, if they don't want to hear you, wipe the dust on your, off your feet and move on. He'll fight his own battles. Yes, we're called to evangelize. And yes, we're called to fight the fight of faith. But sometimes... I think we can assume like Peter did, I got to fight for him. I got to protect him. He doesn't need our protection. We need his protection. Peter gets rebuked by the Lord. The Lord says, hey, I can protect myself. I got plenty of angels that can do this work for me. If I was fighting that type of fight, it would have already been done. But that's not the fight that the Lord came to fight. Matthew chapter 26, verse 54 How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize seize me? But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. See, Jesus is pointing out their sin. He's saying, you had the chance to take me when I taught in the synagogues, when I had my public ministry, when I taught in the temple. You could have taken me then, but why didn't you do this in public? He obviously knows why. 
He's trying to point out the fact that they're living in darkness. He wants them to know that they're in sin and they're in need of him. They're in need of a savior. So he goes out communicating, hey, what you guys are doing, you know it's wrong because you're doing it in darkness. You're not doing this in the daylight. But also something Jesus taught us back in John chapter 3 is that men love darkness. Men love darkness. If we're doing things in the dark that we don't want to be seen by other people, that's a huge red flag. If we're okay to do something behind closed doors that we know is wrong and we're not willing to do it publicly, then then that's a red flag. This is what Jesus is pointing at. You guys are in sin because it's dark outside and you had the chance to arrest me publicly, but they were afraid. They were afraid of the multitudes. So he says in verse 56, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Point number six. I know we got a lot this time. This is the last one. He's passionate to fulfill scripture despite our complacency. He's passionate to fulfill scripture despite our complacency. He's going to fulfill scripture no matter what. And that's what he came to do. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says just that. Matthew five seventeen and 18. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one shot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In the, amidst, in the midst of the inevitable suffering that awaits, in the midst of the fact that the disciples are fleeing, why are they fleeing? Because they weren't spiritually prepared for the crisis. In the midst of all these things, the Lord is still determined to fulfill every jot, every tittle, every marking from the Old Testament. He's purposed to fulfill the word of God. And Jesus... He's passionate to fulfill the word of God because he's confident in the word of God. He is the word of God, right? But he's confident that these scriptures must be fulfilled and he knows the part that he plays in it. The disciples, they run. Why? They're not confident in the scripture. Jesus told them, you all are going to be made to stumble because of me. If they knew the word, if they were confident in it, if they believed what Jesus said, they wouldn't be in this situation right now. They wouldn't be running away. See, the crisis came and they forgot the word. They ran away from it. You ever have a, a situation, a, a storm, a, a trial in your life where you start focusing on your circumstances? The waves are so big. The lightning is so powerful. The winds, everything around me is just terrible. And we focus on the circumstances and we forget the word of God. We forget the word of God when we need it the most. It shouldn't be this way. Jesus was focused on the word of God in the midst of his greatest trial. The disciples were not. They ran away. If they were focused on the word, if they knew it, if they were confident in it, they may have been standing. We may be reading a different story, but they weren't spiritually prepared in knowing and being confident in the word was one of the things that the Lord tried to prepare them for when they faced this crisis, he told them so many times exactly what was going to happen. We don't know what like wasn't clicking. But in the midst of the crisis, they fled from the word of God. <clears throat> now, Jesus, 
not only told him specifically what was going to happen, that he'd die, that he'd be buried, that he'd rise again. He told him that when the shepherd struck, the sheep are going to scatter. He told him, you all are going to be made to stumble because of me. But he also told him in John chapter 16, verse 33, John 16, 33, he says, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will. That's not like a, you might, that's a, you will. It's a promise. It's not one of those promises that we're like, name it, claim it, but it is a promise that's true in scripture. You will have tribulation. It's inevitable. If it hasn't happened, it's going to happen in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer i have overcome the world if they were focused on these scriptures these teachings he he taught them this just before the garden john chapter 16 verse 33 is on the way to the garden he just taught them this if they were focused on the word if they were meditating on it they would have been able to endure this trial but they weren't when trials come it's confirmation that god's word is true Often people, when they have trials, they too will flee from the word of God. They'll flee from Jesus. I know people personally that have walked away from the faith because they experience some some substantial trial in their life. But Jesus tells us, actually, it should be the opposite. When they happen, you should be confident. If you're standing in it, if you're steadfast in it, if you're focused on it, meditating on it, you'll stand where others fall. So we see this contrast between Jesus and the disciples. See, Jesus, he knew that the battle of the cross needed to be won in the garden. He he knew that he needed to be in prayer to his father, dependent on his father, because he knew what was right around the corner. See, this crisis for the Lord was won right there. He spiritually engaged when he needed to. He fought the battle spiritually so that he could later fight the battle physically. The disciples, on the other hand, they gave in. Despite the warning, despite the rebuke, despite the direction from God, they chose to be spiritually complacent. They minimized his word. The temptation won't be that bad. They didn't realize that they'd be fleeing in moments, but had they been obedient, had they listened to the Lord, again, we could be reading something totally different the point is the lord tries to prepare us for trials and sometimes they catch us off guard but if we're really tuning in if we're really listening to him and doing what he's asking us to do we'll be ready for the crisis it was as simple as watch and pray Sometimes it's just that, watch and pray. Sometimes it's, hey, hey, you need to start reading more. Maybe it's, hey, you need to start loving your wife more or, or respecting your husband more. Hey, you need to be a better parent and the Lord will warn us about things. Why? Yes, because he loves us, but he knows what's coming. He knows the trials that we're going to face and he tries to prepare us in the present so that we'll be ready in the future. We can choose to check out, to turn on the spiritual complacency switch, to pretend uh He doesn't mean it. It's not that big of a deal. But I promise you, if that's our mindset, like the disciples, when the crisis comes, we're going to get caught on our heels and we're going to look embarrassed. Jesus tried to set them up for success, even leading by example. But they didn't listen. They didn't watch. They didn't pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you give us good examples in you in negative examples in in the disciples so often, Lord, and we know we're more like the disciples than we are like you. And so I pray in those areas of our life that that we are like them, if there's spiritual complacency anywhere, God, I pray that you would, in kindness and love, 
share with us what to do. Maybe it's watch and pray. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Lord, you know the trials that, that await us and we know that you're preparing us for those very things that we'll be able to stand and not fall and not flee. But I pray that we would take your word seriously. God, that we would do something with it because we know that you're, you're trying to strengthen us to endure these trials. So Jesus, we ask for the power of your spirit and the mind to engage spiritually, that we wouldn't miss what you're saying, that we would walk in it, that we'd have victory as these trials come into our lives. In your name.